Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 and following. Speaking of the kingdom, our Lord Jesus says this, For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So, take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, we desire to be faithful. Even just hearing this parable, we know we need to be one of those first two servants. So Lord, help us. And Lord, we know that you have given us this parable as a warning. Give us Hearts that take this warning seriously. Give us ears that hear and understand what it means to be faithful to you, what it means to know you and trust you. Increase our faith this morning as we listen to your word. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, very similar to last week, you probably have noticed, we're we're in the same setting as we were, and we have a parable where those who call themselves Christians are in mind here. So like we saw last week, that seems to be 
more of what Matthew has been doing throughout his gospel. So when you compare Matthew to John, John's writings, you read John's gospel or you read John's letters, his writings deal more with Christians as against the world or as opposed to the world. But Matthew is very keen on distinguishing true followers of Christ from those who say they're following Christ but aren't. Matthew's point, one of the the themes that we see in Matthew's gospel is true discipleship. In this parable, the false Christian is the third servant, right? We can see that right off the bat. He, he, he ends up in the outer darkness, hell. But, but what does it mean to, to have buried your talent, right? We, we, we understand the, the picture here, but what do these things mean? What, what does it mean to bury your talent? What does it mean to invest your talent? What even is a talent, we're going to answer those questions this morning, but, but the format that we're going to do this in is a little bit different. What I want us to see in this parable are, are four truths, right? Many of us have, who have been coming to church any amount of time, or you, you even hear this one in VBS, so we've heard this parable before, but there are four truths that we might not have picked up on if we get over-focused on the talents themselves. So I want us to see those today. If we get too caught up in the specifics of this parable, we, we kind of lose the point. It is, after all, a parable, right? It's, it's more of, of a, a series of pictures than it is an encyclopedic entry. So when we look at parables, we need to kind of step back, look at the big picture, and that's what I hope we'll, we'll be doing as we look at these four truths. So here are the four truths that you're going to see this morning. Number one, you belong to the Lord. Number two, all that you have, you have received from the Lord. Number three, the Lord gives to each according to his sovereign wisdom. And number four, all that the Lord entrusts us with, he intends to be used for his purposes. All right, we'll we'll go through these. If you missed any of them, you'll see them as we go along. Let's, Let's go through these truths one by one, and I'll show you what where we get them in the parable. So let's start with the first one. Number one, you belong to the Lord. Where do we get that? Look at verse 14. Jesus is continuing in his parables of the kingdom, and and, and he says, it is like, and it there is the kingdom. So the kingdom of heaven is compared here to a master going on a journey. Did you see that in verse 14? Who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. So I want you to see here just from the start that these are servants. They're not business partners. They're not employees. They are his servants. And that word servant is, is the ESV softens it. doesn't quite get to the punch of what's going on here. These men belong to their master. If we use the word slave, it sinks down a little bit further into our understanding, doesn't it? These men are slaves. In the first century context, that means that either the master purchased them, or he traded for them, or they were born to slaves that he already owned, or maybe he inherited them. doesn't matter how he got them. The fact is, they belong to him fully. Their life, their work, their time, their bodies, their names all of what they are and who they are belongs to the master. They're not their own, okay? 
So whatever he commands them, they must do. They don't have a choice. So if we're going to understand this parable in any meaningful way, we have to understand if you are in Christ, you are a slave to the Lord. There, as you read the Bible, you see a number of different ways that the Bible describes our relationship to the Lord. Sometimes we were described as children of the Father. Sometimes we are brothers and sisters to Christ, co-heirs. Sometimes we are the bride of Christ. Sometimes we are citizens of the kingdom of Christ. Sometimes we are ambassadors of Christ. We saw in Psalm 100 this morning, we're people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. We saw in Isaiah 60, we are the branch of his planting. We are his creation. We are his work. All of those are true. But none of them alone gives a complete picture of our relationship to the Lord. So, So some folks, when you talk to them, it becomes apparent They only think of the Lord as their friend, but not as their master. Well, what does that lead to? It leads to trouble, doesn't it? It leads to licentiousness. It leads to the bridesmaids from last week. Presumptuousness. Thinking that no matter what, well, he's my friend, he's going to let me in. Some, Some think of the Lord only as a master. On the other hand. Some think of only as a master, but never consider how exactly he came to be our master and what that means. We'll see more of that in a little bit. That's the error of the third servant. We need, as Christians, we need all of the Bible's ways of describing our relationship to God. And even then, we only get a little bit of understanding, an estimation of who we are. But we need all of it, or else we will end up neglecting some important aspect of who God is or who we are. But to really understand this parable, we've got to understand this slaves-to-masters relationship. And this relationship, as you read the New Testament, probably one of the most most frequently used metaphors to describe our relationship to the Lord. That, That word doulos that is translated slave or servant here Uh, It comes up 126 times in the New Testament. 126. That's a lot. This isn't like a one-off. This is a a very key component to our understanding who we are as related to Jesus Christ. We are his slaves. And in one sense, you may be thinking, if you're troubled by that, yes, we've been freed from slavery, right? But in order to be freed from slavery, we had to be purchased By another master. We've been bought with a price. Christ has purchased us with his own blood. And he didn't, in understanding this, you need to know this. He did not purchase us to free us from sin and then turn us back over to rule over ourselves. Where would that get us? We'd be right back to where we started, wouldn't we? Christ purchased us so that we would belong to him. Our bodies would belong to him. Our minds, our hearts, our entire lives would belong to him. And friends, there is no better master than our Lord Jesus Christ. We are more free serving Christ 
than we ever would be or could be in owning ourselves. Amen. Heidelberg Catechism, question one. What is our only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, and we could add, Master Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That is our joy. That is our delight. It is better to belong to Him than to anyone else or anything else, even ourselves. When a master purchases a slave, according to human law, he owns him, right? There's, there's a way that, that we understand that in a human sense. But, but you need to see this. In this master-slave relationship between us and Jesus, when Jesus purchased you, his ownership of you goes far and above any human understanding, far and above any human law. It is an eternal Ownership. It is an eternal belonging. There's no escaping him. There is no being bought back by someone else. Christ's purchase of you is forever, and there's no greater thing than to be securely in the ownership of Christ. So, so don't miss that, all right? That, that's why I put that as our truth number one. Don't miss that aspect of what's going on, on here. These slaves belong completely to their master. And if you're in Christ, you belong fully to the Lord. That's a good thing, right? Number two, point two, that we see, truth number two, all that you have received, you have received from the Lord. All of it. So in the parable, each of these three slaves are given these talents, right? There's no mention of anything that they possess outside of these talents because the talents and their use of these talents is all that is at hand here. That's the point of the, the parable. A talent, if you're curious what that is, it's a, it's, a, it's a weight, it's a measure. A weight of some precious metal, whether that's gold or silver or copper. And that measure is about, from what we can tell, about 75 pounds. Some sources say this, the amount of metal that a man could carry. Okay, why the... You have these admonitions in the Old Testament about having equal measures, right? Because we need some standard. But a talent could be a little more than 75 pounds. It could be a little bit less. But for our sake, we're just going to say a talent is 75 pounds of some metal. But the problem that we have is when we hear that word talent, well, we have a word in English, right? That, I mean, the word in Greek is talent, and the word in English is talent, but it means something different in English, probably because of this parable. But in English, a talent is, it's like a natural gifting. It's like an aptitude, isn't it? He's a talented artist or she's a talented singer. But the talents in this story, you need to just be clear at the beginning, the talents in this story are money. And it, we don't know how much money. Again, because it's a weight. So if that weight is a talent of gold, it can be different than if it's a talent of silver or bronze or copper. If it's gold in today's dollars, that might be between two and two and a half million dollars, one talent. If it's in silver, that's between twenty-five and thirty thousand dollars. Consider also this to, to add to the confusion. I shouldn't preach just trying to confuse you, but to, but to add to the confusion, uh, silver in their day was the common metal for currency, so there would have been a higher demand for silver. 
So silver might have been worth more than what it is in, even in today's market. Either way, uh, it, this is a lot of money, okay? <laughs> Whether this is gold or silver or bronze, the, the point of the story is that this is a lot of money. We understand that as, as we read this. There's a lot of money that's been entrusted to the servants. In fact, it's all of the master's money. And these servants, these slaves, were expected during their master's absence to take this money and invest it, right? That was to be their life's pursuit while he was away. They belonged to him. We already saw that. Truth number one. And so anything that he commands, they must do. He commanded them to take his wealth and invest it while he's gone. Now let's bring this over to our lives. What are these talents from the parable representative of in our lives? Well, it's, let's just put it simply, it's whatever God has entrusted to you. Well, what's that? Well, for one, it, we can take it literally from the parable. It probably is beginning, at the very least, money. The money that, that has been entrusted to us. And, and I think it's right to think that way. At the very least, the Lord is talking about our money and how we use money here. No matter how much we've been entrusted with, no matter how little we've been entrusted with, all of it comes from the Lord. So, so certainly, the talents here represent our money, but, but if we look elsewhere in Scripture, let's take Acts 17, for instance, the Lord gives life and breath and everything to mankind. So it's not just money. James 1.17 says that every perfect gift comes from the Father. Peter tells us that even our trials come from the Lord. So it's not just our money, is it? His talents, things that have been entrusted to us, is more than that. All that we have is from him. All the good stuff. And yes, even our trials. So in that set of all things, this certainly means, let's think specifically, let's think about our work. We prayed about work today. This certainly means our work has been entrusted to us. So whatever work that the Lord has given you to do, you've received that from Him. No matter how important or unimportant you think that work is, it's from Him. You received it from Him. He's entrusted it to you. That includes at-home work. That includes away from homework. I would say that even it includes the, the season of retirement that many of you have. The season of life that you planned for, you set money aside for, you sacrificed for it. You feel like you earned it, right? It's actually not yours. The season, the retirement season that you're in, for some of you, you've received that from the Lord. He's entrusted that to you. If you're in school right now, right now this season is from the Lord. Students, you're not waiting to receive a vocation from the Lord. You're not in the batter's box. You, you already have received this time, this season from the Lord. You've been entrusted with what you have now. The Bible consistently teaches us not to think of a one day, right? James 4.14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. So we, 
while we do know we're preparing for things in the future, we need to see the season that we're in now is a talent from the Lord. We've been entrusted with it, regardless of what it is. What you have now is from the Lord, not just what you're looking forward to, all right? That means your marriage, your children, your singleness, your houses, your apartments, your car, your bus pass, your, your wisdom and years of experience, your youth and your lack of experience, your education, your training, all of it is from him. And most importantly, I think of all the things that when we think about in that big box of all things, the things of all those things that we've been entrusted with, for those of you who are Christians, you have been entrusted with the gospel. We see this uh, same language that, that, that Jesus uses here previously. If you go back to, to Matthew chapter 13, you don't have to flip there, we'll put it on the screen. In Matthew 13, Jesus was explaining to his disciples why he teaches in parables. I don't know if you remember that. It's stuck in my mind. It's really central to Matthew's gospel. But Jesus is teaching the disciples why he taught in parables. And look what he tells them in Matthew 13, verses 10 through 12. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. To them it's not been given. And then look at verse 12. For to the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So in Matthew 13, this is referring to the, the, the reception of the gospel. Secrets of the kingdom of heaven, that's the gospel. To some, Jesus said, it is given to know the secrets, to know the gospel, to understand it, to receive it in faith. Some it is not given. In our passage, did you, did you pick up on the same language? Look at, look at verse 29 in our passage this morning. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Jesus is repeating the same thing. And why do you think he does that? Why do you think he repeats verbatim what he said way back in Matthew 13? Because we're to remember that. This, remember, Matthew's gospel would have been read. It would have been learned orally. And so if you're sitting there listening to it for the first time and you hear this repeated phrase, you're going to cue up what he told you earlier because it's really important. The gospel of the kingdom has been entrusted to us. We are to remember that the first and most important talent that we've been given is faith in Christ. So for the brothers and sisters, if you have received the gospel, if you are growing in your understanding of the kingdom, it's because it has been given to you. You believe that? It's been given to you. It's been entrusted to you by the Lord. That is really important in understanding this parable, isn't it? It's one other handhold for us to grasp on in understanding what these talents are. Number three, the third truth we see here. The Lord gives according to His sovereign wisdom. Look at verse 15. To one He gave five talents, to another two, to another one to each according to his ability. 
And you might be thinking, I'm going to catch you right here, Dustin. You said the Lord gives according to his sovereign wisdom, but the text says he gave to each person's ability. Well, here's what I mean. The Lord, the master, is giving according to what he knows these men are capable of. Not what these men think that they are capable of. That is an important distinction. The master knows that the first servant can handle the five talents. And he knows that the third servant can only handle this this one. The Lord gives according to his knowledge of each of these servants. And his knowledge is perfect. And that's, that's why we know when we read this, that the Lord is justified in punishing the third servant. Think of it this way. If, if this third servant was totally incapable of handling the one talent, and the Lord knew that, it would have been unjust for the master to punish him for burying it, wouldn't it? But because the Lord gives according to his sovereign knowledge of each man's ability, when he gave the one-talent man one talent to invest, he was right and just when he punished him, when he refused to do what he had been commanded. I think of it this way. In our home, we have always assigned chores according to ability. Right? This, is, this is really logical parenting. That the older and more knowledgeable and stronger you are, the more is expected and the more difficult the task that is given. It would be unjust, wouldn't it, for me to give a three-year-old, and we don't have a secret three-year-old, but if we did, it would be unjust for me to give that three-year-old the task of painting the house and then be upset when she spills the paint. Even if she wanted to paint the house, even if she cried and whined that everyone else got to paint the house, but she didn't, it would be wrong for me to give her a paintbrush and a bucket of paint. It is right and good to give to each according to their ability. And then to hold to each accountability for those tasks that they've been given. So this this master in our parable doesn't entrust to any of his servants more than he knows they are capable of handling. This really does, if we think about it, this really does get at God's providence in our lives. God has entrusted to each one of us, think about all of those talents that we talked about in, in truth number two, He's entrusted to each of us different opportunities. And in his wisdom, he knows. He knows what you're capable of handling. Think about, think about this. Because that, that seems trite. But let's ask this question. Why does God ordain that some whom he calls to Christ would be born into wonderful Christian families with married parents who love each other and teach their kids the Bible and and take their kids to gospel-centered churches and lovingly discipline them and train them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And on the other hand, some whom he calls to Christ are born into broken, abusive homes where where the only memories they have are painful. Why? 
the children born in both of those homes, we know this because of God's goodness and His sovereignty, we know that the children born in both of these homes can certainly come to know the Lord, can't they? But at the very least, we know that 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 first kid has a head start on his understanding of the Bible. And he's got a head start on what obedience to God looks like. He has been given a little bit more. And what this parable shows us is that God expects of him a little bit more. And that, that he will be judged according to the opportunities he's been given. Meanwhile, the second kid, if he comes to know the Lord, he is going to have a deeper, more experiential understanding of forgiveness and forgiving others, isn't he? And God will expect of him with that responsibility and with those opportunities and with that knowledge, he will expect of him in proportion to what he's been given. He will know God's grace in a way that the other kid just doesn't know as deeply. And with that, God will expect of him to use that knowledge accordingly. And here's how the Lord operates. Did you notice the rewards of the first and second servant? The first servant, he was entrusted with five talents, and he invested them and doubled them. And the second servant was only entrusted with two talents, and he invested them and he doubled them. But the reward is the same, isn't it? Look at verse 21. The master says to the first servant, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And to the second servant, exactly the same. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. They're exactly the same. The eternal reward is the same. Even though Their starting point was different. And here's why this matters. Because there is a temptation for all of us to always look at the person with more talents, isn't there? Always. There's a temptation to bemoan the fact that you've been entrusted with maybe one talent or two talents when someone else has been entrusted with five. And what do we do? We start to feel sorry for ourselves. Maybe it's because we have some disability. Maybe it's because we have some illness. Or maybe it's because we have a child who has a disability. Or maybe we're not as mobile as we once were. Or you're single and you want to be married. Or you're married with kids and you feel like you're being held back. Because you don't have the time you used to have. Or you want to have kids, but you can't. Whatever it is, listen, God has providentially entrusted to you This season of life that you're in. So let me say it again. God, in his infinite wisdom, has entrusted to you this season of your life and all that that entails. And he expects right now, regardless of what that season is for you or how much money you have or how little money you have or how busy you are or how not busy you are, he expects of you the same thing he expects of the person that you wish you were. You know what that is? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. He expects faithfulness with whatever he has given you. Whether you have a lot to offer right now or whether you have very little to offer right now. He expects you to use what you do have right now 
and who you are in the time that you've been entrusted with expects you to use that for his glory. That's what faithfulness is. You are never done serving him. Younger folks, you're not waiting to serve him later when you get that degree or whatever it is. Older folks, you are not finished serving him. Christ is our Lord and our master, and as long as we're waiting for him to return, no matter how long it takes, we are to invest what he's given us. So I want to say this as gently as I can. It's going to sound harsh. But stop wishing you were someone else. Stop wishing that you were something else. Stop wishing you had a different upbringing. You can't go back in time and reverse that. Stop wishing you had different parents or a different wife or husband or different kids or a different job because that wishing, I want you to understand this, that wishing, that discontentedness with the talents that God has entrusted you with, you know what that is? That is shaking your fist at God and saying, I know better than you do. I could be more. You don't know what you're doing, God. Make me master and I'll make it right. But the Lord gives to each of us according to his sovereign wisdom. Amen? And that's a good thing. You would mess it up so much worse. So would I. And that leads us to our fourth truth. He, he, he gives to each according to his sovereign wisdom. Number four, in all that the Lord gives us, he has entrusted to us to be used for his glory. All of it. So in the parable, all that the Lord entrusted to the servants, they were expected to give back to him everything, all, every bit of it, when he returned. What they started with and what they earned all goes back to him because it was, it was his money. It says that over and over again in the parable. It was his. He gave it to them to invest, and the return on investment and the original investment were going back to him. So, so in, in, in verse 20 and in verse 22, when the master comes to the first and the second servants to settle accounts, Matthew says, the first and the second both give him his investment in addition to what they earned. All of it was his to begin with. They knew that. They were okay with that. And all the profits belonged to him as well. And they were okay with that too. Why? That didn't bother them. They trusted him, didn't they? Those first and second servants, they trusted the master. They knew that the very best possible thing that they could do with those talents was multiply them for the master. Look, look at, again at what happens when they first receive them. They're so thrilled to, to receive from the master. Look at verse 16. He who had received the, first, the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. It doesn't say how long it took to make five talents more. But what Matthew is clear is that at once, as soon as he gets it, he goes. We don't even know if the master's departed yet. And he's already putting these talents to use. Both of the first two servants were this way. Both of them, as soon as they received this wealth from the master, immediately they put his money to work. No delay. No, I'll get to it later, but now. Why? Because they delight in serving the master. He's their joy. They, they want nothing more than to work for him and to see him glorified in the work that they put their hands to. 
And when the master returns, it's like they can't wait to show him, isn't it? They can't wait to show him what they earned for him. And so, so the greatest possible reward that you could imagine even giving these men who love their master in this way is what we see in verse 21. They get to enter the joy of their master. What does that even mean? All that the master delights in, all that he's excited about, everything that the, the master is overjoyed with, they get to enter into that. Very good illustration of Westminster Catechism. Question one. So we did Heidelberg number one. Let's do Westminster number one. What is the chief and highest end of man? Here's your answer. Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Well, these, these servants knew, isn't it? This, they knew Westminster, number one. Their, their life was spent glorifying God because they loved working for the master. They enjoyed being with the master. They, they were anticipating his return, and they believed that he would care for them no matter what. And so they trusted him, and their reward was him. But I want you to notice something in the third servant. We all know this is a cautionary tale. Don't be like the third servant. Notice something about him. He knew, he knew the master as well, didn't he? But it's clear from the parable, he didn't fully know the master. He only knew the master to the extent that he knew the master was a master and that he was severe. Look at verses 24 and 25. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward comes up last. You know, he's not the first guy waiting for the master to come back, is he? Running, I got your, your talent that I dug back up out of the ground. No, he's last. He's afraid. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering whether, where you scattered no seed. And so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. He has no shame in telling the master he's afraid of him. Anyway, there's a couple things I want you to see this. There's two things that he knows about his master. He doesn't know everything about his master. He doesn't know what the first and second servants know about the master. These two things he knows. The master reaps where he did not sow. Did you see that? What in the world is he talking about? What that means is the master takes for himself all of the profits that the servants earned. The master reaps what the servants owned. You get that? That's why this servant is complaining. You reap what you didn't sow. I did the sowing. We do the sowing and you get all the profit. The master isn't the one that scatters. The servants are. The master takes the harvest as his own. And the servant, because of that reality, the servant considers the master severe for that. And you can, you can sense, do you sense it? There's a, there's a little bit of resentment there, isn't there? There's a little bit of resentment in the fact that he has to relate to the master as a servant and not as a business partner. But he knows this as well. Secondly, the servant knows that the master is someone to be afraid of. He knows, doesn't he, that the master holds his life in his hand. And that terrifies him. And that terror paralyzes him. And it leads him to inaction. 
Look at the way that verse 26 describes his, his actions or his lack of actions as slothfulness. Do you know this servant? Are you this servant? You know about the Lord. You don't know him. You know that the Lord is creator. You know that the Lord is judge. You know that all that we have, we will give an account to before the Lord. And you know that the Lord expects righteousness of you. And friend, all of those things are true, aren't they? But this is what happens if, you, if that is all that you know of the Lord. You will spend your whole life not doing anything because you don't want to do the wrong thing. You'll be so afraid of doing something bad that will lead to punishment that you'll do nothing at all. You'll begin to think that serving this master is all about right and wrong and not about the peace of knowing Christ and the joy of serving him and anticipating his return. If the Christian life is all about not messing up, there will be no joy for you in serving the Lord. There will be no sense of glorifying God with your life. There will be no anticipation of enjoying Him forever, entering into His joy, because your belief is that He has no joy, only wrath. Do you know why? It's because you don't know the grace and the mercy of God. You don't know that the Lord loves you and delights in you. It's as if you've forgotten that the way that you came to be his servant to begin with is that he purchased you with his own blood. Anyone who is so afraid of God that they can't glorify them, him, with their lives, doesn't know the gospel. The fear of doing wrong paralyzed the third servant. He so much did not want to displease the Lord because he believed him to be harsh. He was afraid of punishment. And so he felt justified in not seeking to glorify him. He played it safe, didn't he? Safe. And in playing it safe, he missed the entire point of what service to the master is about. Coaching Little League gives a lot of illustrations, all right? And I, and I, I, I use them sparingly. But, but take the little leaguer who doesn't want to strike out. How does he play the game? Bat on the shoulder. Never swings the bat. In his mind, he's made this calculation. In his mind, he understands a walk is better than a strikeout. And so he's rationalized that the odds of a hit are too low to swing the bat and risk the strikeout. So that bat stays on the shoulder. Swinging the bat is a risk, right? That's why major league players, the best ones, bat 300. <laughs> That's terrible. Three out of ten, it's a risk. But the whole point of the game is to take the risks. Get the hits, score the runs, and win. The master is not giving out participation trophies. 
that the kid who knows their coach and who knows him best knows what the coach expects of him. And he loves his coach. And he loves the game. And, and, and the love of the game makes the necessary risk wonderful, doesn't it? That's the glory of it all. The kid who plays it safe and never swings the bat sits the bench and he eventually quits the game. And if that was you in baseball, that's okay. All right, it's just a game. It's a stupid game. It's fun, but it's a stupid game. No big deal. There are far more important things. But if that's you in the Christian life, if you are the fearful and slothful third servant, This parable is a dire warning, isn't it? The consequences of not swinging the bat, the consequences for this servant are that he's cast into the outer darkness. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's Jesus' way of describing hell, friends. Someone who thinks that they're playing it safe who thinks that the Christian life is all about right and wrong and not delighting in the Master, is headed there. And the reason for, for that is not slothfulness. Slothfulness is, is a symptom. It's not the cause. It's a symptom of not truly knowing the Master. Knowing the Lord means that you know Him fully. Yes, you know that he is master. Yes, you know that he is to be feared. Yes, you know that you are accountable to him. But you also know that the way that he became your master was through his love for you. And that transforms you. It transforms you so much that your lives then become a joyful response to his love for you. He's still master. He will always be our master. He still holds our lives in his hands. Praise God that he is our judge and not someone else. Because there is no one more just. But our reason for serving him is not cold, legalistic fearfulness. Our reason for serving him is that there is nothing greater than to serve him. Because there is no one greater, amen? There is no one greater than our Lord. No one more gracious, no one more loving, no one more satisfying and trustworthy than Him. You belong to Him. He's purchased you. And He's given you all that you have so that you could give it back to Him for His glory. For from Him and from through him and to him are all things. So to him be glory forever. Amen.